I have called up in all my years of sorcery Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Philip. Hastane. And I'm Ruth. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, we'll be covering The Devotee of Evil. Evil! Which is the last story in the uh, <laughs> Philip Hastain series. And if you're to believe Ruth's audio interpretation, it's the story of an evil horse. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be a ghost, a spooky ghost. Evil. Oh, a ghost horse, an evil ghost horse. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> also, as we discussed, what was it two weeks ago that you said that I was, a, what was it, addicted to evil? In love with evil. Yes. yes. You are in love with oh, evil. Yeah. So I feel great resonation with the uh, with the titular character of the story. Remember when we got all super political during our City of the Saints play <laughs> yes. episode? Did anybody comment on that or did we get no. away with it? I think we yeah, got we got it. away with it. Those two episodes have like the least feedback from any of our other episodes Wait, oh well actually I the second one i was gonna say i could have sworn that the yeah no beyond the singing flame i think people are just kind of pretending didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> well let's see if we can spruce things up with the devotee of evil yeah. let's spruing into evil <laughs> uh the devotee of evil was first published with the double shadow and other stories in 1933 by the auburn journal in the same thing I was going to say, by the Auburn Journal, what we mean is Smith paid them to do it. Yeah, it's in that same little pamphlet uh, that the Double Shadow originally appeared in. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, that's how I first read it. Oh, really? You read the original in the Double Shadow? Yes, I first read it in the original. <laughs> in 1933. There are so many voices going on in this episode already. There's the ghost horse. <laughs> there's Southern Ruth. I don't know where we're going to go from here. As I said when we were recording the last episode, also tonight, I'm just, I'm in a mood. I'm in a place. <laughs> I'm in a place in my life right now where I'm a month away from graduating from my master's degree. Is that place the old Larcom House in Auburn, California? The old Larcom House was a mansion of considerable size and dignity, set among oaks and cypresses on a hill behind Auburn's Chinatown in what had once been the aristocratic section of the village. At the time of which I write, it had been unoccupied for several years and had begun to present the signs of desolation and dilapidation which untenanted houses so soon display. The place had a tragic history and was believed to be haunted. I had never been able to procure any first-hand or precise accounts of the spectral manifestations that were accredited to it. but. Certainly, it possessed all the necessary antecedents of a haunted house. The first owner, Judge Peter Larkham, had been murdered beneath its roof back in the 70s by a maniacal Chinese cook. One of his daughters had gone insane, and two other members of the family had died accidental deaths. None of them had prospered. Their legend was one of sorrow and disaster. And Orientalism. And Orientalism. Encroaching Orientalism. (laughs) So, I don't... I guess I didn't... 
ever think that Auburn would have had a Chinatown, but I'm assuming that it did. I in guess reality. so. Yeah. When, well, when you think about it, it it's a mining type area. Well, not California is a mining type area, and the West Coast is very heavy in Asian immigrants, as compared to here over on the East Coast. California and Washington and Oregon had fairly large Asian populations because they all came over from that side, not coming in through, say, Ellis Island or anything. And right. so it actually, now that I think about it, it's sad, but it makes some sense that any town of, of any size might actually have a ghettoized section, essentially, oh, where yeah, they say, you Chinese, whether it's two families or 10 or 100, go live over in this part of town and don't bother anybody. How big do you and... think the mulatto population is? Well, we know it's at least one. <laughs> Yeah, and she is a looker, if not a talker. How do we know? That? Well, she's not necessarily a looker. She's she's somewhat exotic. I thought not, I thought that no, he she's described exotic, her wait, wait, as more exotic than let's, hot. Let's set that up before we start. Yeah. No, hold on. I want to fight about whether Fifine is sexy or not. No, we because... will. We'll get to we'll get to it. We're not even. We haven't even introduced her yet. I jumped she's the gun. She's to be it. beautiful. So the yeah. so the the old Larkham house. It's been abandoned for years and years, and then mm -hmm. uh, this rich Creole dude from New Orleans. Jean Averode, say it French, say it Frenchy, French girl. Averode, but I, I would just say Averode because um, he's he's a Creole, so he's Americanized a bit. Yeah, so he owns the house now, and I guess there's a lot of strange talk about him around town that he's a. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there's a lot of talks around of him around town. They they think he's. Oh yeah, he's like oh, rich and spooky and Mephistophelian. Yeah, he's rich and spooky, and so people can't figure out what to make of him, whether he's just kind of harmless mm -hmm. or like Mephistopheles. And they think he's weird because he's doing, um, he's bringing in carpenters and stuff, but he's not changing the outside right. of the house. He's leaving the yeah. outside of the house all crappy and overgrown. And also he has this mulatress, as, as she is called, um, who we'll meet later, and she she's never spoken to anyone and people think she's both mistress and housekeeper. So... Hestane, who um, we understand in this story to never have had any kind of supernatural experiences, <laughs> is kind of, I guess, just a man about Auburn. Like, he literally, in this story, he almost, I think, literally becomes Clark Ashton Smith. Like, yeah. he's in Auburn, he's around Auburn, he's a writer in Auburn, and he's seen Evero around a little bit, but the story of their first meeting is pretty hilarious, I think. <laughs> Yes, because uh, Hastane is in the library. The library. Reading a newspaper. <laughs> he's reading a newspaper, uh, not about the price of gold nope. or about the impending Orientalism. Uh. He <laughs> is reading about, about a man who locked his uh, wife and children in a closet and then laid an apron string like a fuse, lit it on fire, and burned them to death. <laughs> yeah. So it's some light. He's doing some light... <laughs> reading in the in the Auburn library. <laughs> and that's really all we know about that story. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. It's like a little story it. within the story, which Smith doesn't usually do. He doesn't usually sidetrack from his main narrative to tell like a little a little side. A little especially one story. that's so morbid. Like yeah. it's so morbid. <laughs> yeah. But there's yeah. a point to that because Averode, who seems to be familiar with that story uh, sees that that Hastane, I almost called him Smith, sees that Hastane is reading it and uh, leans over and says, like, that's a good one, right? Yeah. Could any man on his own initiative have conceived and executed something so gratuitously fiendish? <laughs> Let's talk about evil, man. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, so they engage in this philosophical conversation. There's a lot of philosophizing in the story. About evil. Uh, about evil and mankind. Mm-hmm. And Hastane thinks that human nature is more abhorrent than the nature of the jungle. But that is not what Averro thinks. No. Averro thinks that there is an evil force or entity uh, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the universe that is a dark vibration. Like a that, black sun. That radiates evil into it can mankind. penetrate like any other ray, perhaps even more <laughs> deeply. And then he's like, oh, you probably don't understand what I'm talking about. But strangely, <laughs> Hestane is like, oh, no, I get what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Without any reference to any of his other stories. Like, oh, yeah, I get what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Um, you're saying like, that there's a devil somewhere in the universe. But it was like, it's, it's not even that. It's he doesn't believe that it comes from a Satan or an entity. He even says that a Satan? No. What I conceive is a sort of dark vibration. He just believes that it's <laughs> like a it's a radi- that evil is radiation. It's like cosmic <laughs> rays that come out and make people cosmic do bad things. Cosmic rays of evil. And if we only we could find and destroy that place in the universe. I don't really necessarily understand what his point is because well, we sh- I guess we should get through the whole story, and then we can try to yeah. figure out what exactly it is that he thinks that he's doing. Well, I know that Everode, like, he-, he stands up and says, Oh, so, um, by the way, in case you didn't know who I am, uh, here's who I am, and I know who you are, because I admire your books, and we may have certain tastes in common, hunch, <laughs> hunch, wink, wink, know what I mean, say no more. So, um, so why don't you come by and see me sometime, eh? And then he bumps into him on the street a few days later, and he's like, hey, come by and see me sometime, eh? Hey, hey, I get lonely. It's just me in the house. He just keeps encouraging him to come over, and so Hestane decides that he might as well do it because he's kind of curious. Uh, so Hestane takes the invitation, and he shows up at the Larkham house, which are precisely as he remembered them. So they're still pretty run down on the outside and uh, have a half-sinister charm about them, which, of course, means that our Clark Ashton Smith surrogate thinks that they're totally irresistible. (laughs) Oh, exactly. (laughs) And then he knocks on the uh, door with the gargoyle-shaped knocker, and then a woman answers the door, and she's more exotic than beautiful. More exotic than beautiful, Phil. But that uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that she's not beautiful. Yeah. Her figure, though... Was perfect. Her figure was truly perfect. All I'm saying is, if she was massively beautiful and massive, even more massively exotic, then uh, I could still be correct. Yeah. But she doesn't speak. No. Nope. So she smiles and makes signs for him to enter. It makes me think of of a cross between something from the Southern vampire novels and the um, remember those mute slaves? That yes. Didn't say anything? Yes. Yeah. Now, of course, she's not a slave, but she is a housekeeper who comes from Louisiana. In the 1930s, so as far as like rights and options and possibilities go, maybe not the best. Although she is perhaps involved and perhaps happily, like she seems. Well, we'll talk about how she feels about him later. Right. Yeah. Uh, another thing that that relates the story to the last story is the presence of like concerned females, interest. Yeah. yeah, concerned mm-hmm. women, which is again kind of I don't know. They're just these stories are so similar. It's really weird. So. Fafine is her name. Fafine? Fafine? Fafine, yeah. Fafine admits him into the house. And uh, Hastane gets to spend a moment or two in the gloomy library looking at uh, the array of tomes that what are they all has about? connected. They are all, well, let me tell you, there's a lot of uh, disciplines represented, but they're really all about evil. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like <laughs> Les Fleurs du Mal, um, which is the poetry, and then Byron and Poe and Manichaeanism and all kinds of stuff. What would you call someone who's so into evil like this? A super a cool devotee. <laughs> I guess that's the end of the story then, huh? Yeah, he, yeah. He, he comes he into comes the in library and he's like, well, and he's like yeah. man, you are devoted <laughs> to evil. And he's like... I call myself a devotee of evil. And see, <laughs> and Evero comes in and is like, I noticed that your eyes keep lingering on my sexy books. <laughs> and then he sort of, I mean, reveals what we've already said, which is that they really are all about evil, the study of ancient evil and modern evil and medieval evil. And he's found it. He's found evil everywhere. He's found it in the inspirations of poets and romancers. He's found it uh, in the novels of Hastain. He's found it even in the decay of trees and flowers and mineral minerals, he has, again, a real philosophy of evil. He's postulated a monistic evil, which is the source of yeah. all death, deterioration, imperfection, pain, sorrow, madness, and disease. I also like that, that his, his theory is that now when he says, I am sure that somewhere in space there is the center from which all evil emanates, I mean, he's talking about like, like space space, right? Like out in the galaxy, right? That's how I took it. I I think so, yeah. Yeah. I picture like a, a a deep dark hole with tentacles coming out of it, kind of like in video games, specifically like some of the Daedric stuff in Skyrim. That's where I'm going with that. I equate the story with John Carpenter's movie, The Prince of Darkness, which has this crazy scientific explanation for what evil is. Like they find the devil in a tub of goo. It's like a substance, which I always... There's a lot of, I've been in a lot of disagreements about that movie recently. I, <laughs> I really like it, but it's totally a bizarre and probably objectively speaking, not a very good movie, but it has this sort of like weird quantum mechanics take on what evil is. And that's what this reminds me of. Huh. I have learned that certain localities and buildings, certain arrangements of natural or artificial objects are more favorable to the reception of evil influences than others. The laws that determine the degree of receptivity are still obscure to me, but at least I have verified the fact itself. As you know, there are houses or neighborhoods notorious for a succession of crimes or misfortunes, and there are also articles such as certain jewels whose possession is accompanied by disaster. Such places and things are receivers of evil. I have a theory, however, that there is always more or less interference with the direct flow of the malignant force, and that pure, absolute evil has never yet been manifested. By the use of some device which would create a proper field or form a receiving station, it should be possible to evoke this absolute evil. Under such conditions, I am sure that the dark vibration would become a visible and tangible thing compared to light or electricity. He eyed me with a gaze that was disconcertingly exigent. Then, I will confess that I have purchased this old mansion and its grounds mainly on account of their baleful history. The place is unusually liable to the influence of which I have spoken. I am now at work on an apparatus by means of which, when it is perfected, I hope to manifest in their essential purity the radiations of malign force. Because, yeah... <laughs> it's a crazy idea. This story also reminds me a lot, actually, of um, The House on Haunted Hill in that mm -hmm. it has a this this idea that, like, some places are just bad. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that. Uh, and also or the, the, what about the Haunting of Hill House. Well, that's, that's what I meant, yeah, The House okay. the Haunting of Hill House, yeah. And that um, also just the idea of, like, a, 
like a dude who then comes to that house because he wants to either prove or disprove his like crazy theory about the supernatural. It has, I mean, I, I, I doubt that really Jackson read this and was like, hey, I'm going to write this other story, but it has a certain, um, they bear a certain resemblance to each other. I think it's a cool idea in that there's, um, like for once we've got somebody coming to the house to prove it, not to disprove it and to make it more stronger. Kind of That's a cool true. approach yeah. to it. So Fafine comes in, and we have, I think this is actually when we learn her name, and Evero kind of reveals that Fafine is the only person that cares for him at all. Uh, and we also learn that Evero had a wife, but she is now doubly dead to him, which is a fascinating little detail. I don't know if that yeah. means that she is actually dead or if he just views her to be dead to him. I could see it as, as they were estranged and then she died. Or right. I could see it as she died, he raised her from the dead, and then she died again. <laughs> I didn't think that. I think she probably didn't. She wasn't comfortable with his devotion to evil. So see, but they probably didn't get a divorce. But yeah, they were probably estranged. But don't you think that there? Don't you died. think that it's possible? I don't know. The doubly dead thing is weird because the first time I read it, I was like, oh well, maybe she died horribly in a way that he is not able to explain. And this whole, like, his whole devotion to evil is a means by which he's attempting to find some kind of order that would make sense of his wife's death. But the doubly dead implies bad blood, so I don't think that my interpretation is necessarily the correct one. I still just like the idea that she came back and he was like, oh... Crap, she's you know she's not actually, she's kind of a zombie now. <laughs> given <laughs> given my work. penchant for reading between the lines of stories where there's no evidence, I'm gonna 100 percent right. go behind Ruth, which is to say that right. I agree. He has a there's a a secret zombie story love story that is the background of the devotee of evil. We saw yeah because yeah, he had uh, he had Fafine uh, kill her <laughs> the second time. And through that trauma, she lost her ability to speak. Yes. You know, I think I'm going to write this. <laughs> also, I mean, it was Louisiana. And, you know, yeah. insert 1930s voodoo-related stage right, right here. Absolutely. An old we all East know Cajun that families. in the 1930s, voodoo worked. And oh, yeah. everybody was always coming back to life. It was a huge problem <laughs> until uh, Roosevelt covered it up. Yeah, Smith is basically screaming this this <laughs> subplot at him. Uh, so what's funny is that he considers Averroed a madman after he leaves him, but he considers his mad- madness of an uncommon and picturesque variety. Right. And so, yeah, so he decides to just go for it. He does the same thing in this story that he did in the last story where he just kind of loses the the trail of what they're talking about and gets out of there. Mm-hmm. But then he cu- starts coming back again. Well, he yeah, right, because he, he keeps bumping into him. Oh, he keeps bumping into him in town. And I think he doesn't want too much to do with him because he thinks he's totally Looney Tunes. But then he he sees him one day and he's like, oh, I finished. I finished my machine. If you want to see oh, it. No, no, it's not, no, it's wait, not just, finished yet. No, it's, it's just I'll show it to you oh, if you want right, to see it. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So he protests his eagerness to do it and leads him into this room that he hasn't been in before. And now he understands where all the carpentry had been going. Because if you remember, yeah. he, when he came to the house, he's like, well, I don't see anything that the carpenters would have done. This looks exactly like it should have. Everard says that that's on purpose because he didn't want to mess with the house. Because you know what happens if you mess with the house? You might lose the might evil lose vibrations. vibrations yeah. Oh, that's right. I was listening to Coast to Coast AM the other day, and they had the guy who was the kid in the um oh what was it the amityville horror house on there 
and that old tale and he basically said that it was the family's fault not the house's fault because his dad was involved with transcendental meditation and drugs. wait no, but that whole story was fake tim it's fake <laughs> <laughs> I honestly have no idea. And it's also entirely it's possible that like the kid believes that it was real because, you know, he was very young at the time and kind of traumatized about it. Yeah. And his parents told be. him it was all real and stuff. But all the but, all the stuff that I read, it was yeah. something that was cooked up between the lawyer and like a publisher. Yeah, that's what it definitely sounded like. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um it just made me think of the house that was evil when I read it and then I couldn't remember what I had just been listening to that made me think of yeah. it. But that's the thing. So Averroed takes Hastain down to his triangle-shaped room that's hung with black curtains and shows him his brass tripod. What I love about this is that it is um, not science. It's music. Mm -hmm. Like, it's all yeah. gongs and wires. It's like a, yeah. like a crazy musical instrument that he's going to play. Yeah. Which it's is, all about so the machine Super cool, I think. Super cool. The machine is is described as it's it's on a, a low tripod of brass. Um, and he says, I remember that there were many wires of various varying thickness mm -hmm. stretched on a series of concave sounding boards of some dark, unlustrous metal. And above these, there depended from three horizontal bars a number of square, circular, and triangular gongs. Each of these appeared to be made of a different material. Some were bright as gold or translucent as jade. Others were black and opaque as jet. A small hammer-like instrument hung opposite each gong at the end of a silver wire. So yeah, it's all based on musical vibration. It sounds like a crazy... Have you guys... Uh, Tim, you probably haven't, Ruth. Have you been to the House on the Rock in Wisconsin? I have not. I would like to go sometime. Yeah, it sounds like something... Like some kind of crazy made-up musical contraption that they would have at the House on the Rock. It's sort of like absurd. Because uh, it's also automated. It's not like he plays it himself. So, like, they flip a switch and it turns on, which is also right. very yeah. uh, House on the Rock. Yeah, room. that does sound yeah. like it. <laughs> and the, the principle behind this machine is that each gong will neutralize uh, a sound. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're, they've been created to neutralize every sound except that of evil. <laughs> it makes so much sense. It does. Uh, and how many gongs is he away from the getting the perfect vibration? One <laughs> gong he just needs away. One more <laughs> gong. <laughs> uh, there's this little, before we get in the next reading, there's this little passage where Hastain says, though he had professed on many occasions to abhor the evil which he planned to evoke, I felt an inverted fanaticism in his attitude, which mm -hmm. I think kind of speaks to, remember how I'm always wondering about Clark Ashton Smith's use of the word evil? Because... Mm -hmm. He tends to use it to describe things that he seems to think are super attractive and seductive. Yeah, um, cool things. Yeah, cool things are evil. <laughs> I feel like there's a that that right there kind of sums up the complexity of the way that he tends to use evil in his stories, where it's like he's throwing that word around a lot, but he's not really he's not really treating it like it's a bad thing, more like it's a right. weird seductive thing. Every time he types it, he throws the horns above his head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and like thrusts his hips a little bit because he's that kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, evil, I'm coming for you. So Evero turns on the machine. There surged upon me an intolerable depression, together with a multitude of sensations which I despair of conveying in language. 
my very sense of space was distorted and deformed, as if some unknown dimension had somehow been mingled with those familiar to us. There was a feeling of dreadful and measureless descent, as if the floor were sinking beneath me into some nether pit, and I seemed to pass beyond the room in a torrent of swirling, hallucinative images, visible but invisible, felt but intangible, and more awful, more cursed than the hurricane of lost souls beheld by Dante. Down, down, I appeared to go, in the bottomless and phantom hell that was impinging upon reality. Death, decay, malignity, madness gathered in the air and pressed me down like satanic incubi in that ecstatic horror of descent. I felt that there were a thousand forms, a thousand faces about me, summoned from the gulfs of perdition. And yet I saw nothing but the white face of Averroes, stamped with a frozen and abominable rapture as he fell beside me. Like a dreamer who forces himself to awaken, he began to move away from me. I seemed to lose sight of him for a moment in the cloud of nameless, immaterial horrors that threatened to take on the further horror of substance. Then I realized that Averroes had turned off the switch and that the oscillating hammers had ceased to beat on those infernal gongs. The double shaft of shadow faded in midair. The burden of terror and despair lifted from my nerves, and I no longer felt the damnable hallucination of nether space and descent. So this is exactly like what Hathane doesn't remember from the last story, where yes. his wallpaper goes away, and he like yeah. goes to another dimension. And also what he doesn't remember about going beyond the city of the singing flame when he had this experience. Um, but again, this is kind of my favorite passage from the story because it's so like it, it, it becomes, you know, poetic in its prose, yeah. which is yeah. really fun. I really love the idea that it's all just canceling out of sound that does it. And Averroes is really excited about what he was able to do and that he was able to share it. Yeah, Hastain is like, that was horrible. It's like I experienced the vibration of evil and I'm responding as a person might who had experienced pure evil. And Averroes yeah. is like, no, dude, that rock! <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I like, um, he describes the sound that it made when it, when it turned on. Uh, the sound they made was dissonant and disquieting to the last degree, a diabolic percussion unlike anything I have ever heard and exquisitely painful to the nerves. I felt as if a flood of finely broken glass was pouring into my ears. Yeah, it's like, was... remember we made all those stoner metal jokes and yet here we are <laughs> and maybe he just heard like an Electric Wizard album or something. Yeah, yeah. or Blood Ceremony. Or, <laughs> yeah, but then he would describe the sound of the flute, right? That's true. Um, a demonic flute. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe that's what Lovecraft was hearing. Uh, so he leaves, and there's this fun little beat where Hestain kind of questions. Uh, I wondered if my sensation in the black triangular room had not been wholly a matter of suggestion or auto-hypnosis. I asked myself if it were credible that a cosmic force of that sort postulated by Averro could really exist, or, granting it existed, could be evoked by any man through the absurd intermediation of a musical device. <laughs> Like I love, <laughs> I love like this passage for two reasons. One, because it, it asks a very valid question about what's going on in that, like, it might... I don't, I don't know if the story really gives an answer. Like, it could just be that he has, you know, created an auto-hypnosis machine. And the second thing is that it acknowledges how absurd the story is. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, there's this absurd musical device. <laughs> like, just go with yeah. it. Yeah. 
Also, um, once again, Hastain has definitely not experienced anything else. Oh no, God no, like never. This before. Nope. So is it now that when he leaves and then yeah. Fafine um, uh, stops him and no. implores him with her eyes? No, no, <laughs> no. Um, that's not. Until he, he leaves, but then I can't remember oh, okay. what makes him come back to the house for the, for the yeah, last it time. Yeah, it's really, okay. it's very like. Okay, go so ahead. that's the weird thing is that he just decides that you know what it was all subjective, and gosh darn it, he's coming back. Like there's no moment of a day later or whatever. It doesn't say what kind of timing yeah. it was. It it's, just seems like he went back to spite it's himself. It's very abrupt. Yeah. It's weirdly it's like, abrupt. And then suddenly he's back. There's no time even really at home. He's just trying to convince yeah. himself out in the outside world that it's all real. And we don't know if it's an hour, a day, a week. And bam, he comes back. And this time, for a longer period, nobody's answering the knock. And then when it, she, Fafine does answer, apparently she's got kind of crazy <laughs> she, she eyes. She grunts at him. <laughs> and she grunts at him because she's mute and she's like, so freaked out that she's that she's she's making a sound she's trying to convey something and she pulls at his sleeve and, and draws him along to toward the triangular room and he starts hearing the sound of the gongs and then she she's just like okay she gives him this look like i'm so freaked out you go in there i'm not gonna go back in there again and stuff so then what happens guys yes okay yeah yes hello hi <laughs> okay um <laughs> so they go into the room and the machine is on yes it's like fully full-blown 100 percent on and that gong is gonging yeah the station is fully operational <laughs> the station is fully operational and Averroda is wearing a medieval costume with a black gown and cap yes. like faustus he's dressed like a sorcerer awesome. in front of this this evil machine but so Literally hold on hold on machine. pause on the image of him as a sorcerer yeah. Why? Yeah. Like why? Again, he's not. It's not like he's dressing up to play an instrument. It's just the switch he flips. Why okay. is he <laughs> yeah. wearing the sorcerer costume? I have I have two suggestions. Because if I were going to encounter pure evil, I would just put on my smoking jacket and my flip flops <laughs> and like my Bermuda shorts. Bring it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that does sound pretty evil, Phil, as a combo. What? Why? But if it's <laughs> hey, Ruth. Okay, so hear I, me I out. Have... Why do you have to dress like evil to experience pure evil? It's I not fashion, things. it's evil. Go ahead. One is that um, he doesn't want to disrupt the mood in any way. So setting the mood by wearing a properly sorcerer's outfit could be a part of his not, not disrupting it with like a jolly waves or comfy waves or something. Okay. Two, <laughs> my theory is that these actually are medieval garments that belong to a sorcerer or something and look like the house because he needed a good place to build this. Yeah, He's right. wearing attractors yeah. of evil. Evil attractors. So, yeah, these are evil attractors. These are things. These belong to somebody, say, like um, Gilles de Rey that we mentioned back in the day on our Everon things that he, you know, killed all of those kids. I just feel like it makes it all a little bit corny. Bell. <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. I like that he's so dedicated to this that he's like, you know what? To turn this on, I'm going to dress like a sorcerer. <laughs> I'm going Ride for it. Ride the lightning, man. Yeah. And then I, you know, and honestly, I would do the same thing. You would so do the same thing. <laughs> if I'm going to something really cool, I dress up for it, you know. And rather than like turning it off or anything, Hastain also gets sucked into it. Evera just becomes one more phantom in his delirium that he's experiencing. And Fafine is another one, but she runs by him and hits the switch that operates the hammers. Bam, it's all turned off. As one who re-emerges from a swoon, I saw the fading of the dull pillar, till the light was no longer sullied by any tinge of that satanic radiation, 
and where it had been, Averroed still stood beside the baleful instrument he had designed. Erect and rigid he stood, in a strange immobility, and I felt an incredulous horror, a chill awe, as I went forward and touched him with a faltering hand. From that which I saw and touched was no longer a human being, but an ebon statue, whose face and brow and fingers were black as the Faust-like remnant or the sullen curtains. Charred as by sable fire or frozen by black cold, the features bore the eternal ecstasy and pain of Lucifer in his ultimate hell of ice. For an instant, the supreme evil which Auerode had worshipped so madly, which he had summoned from the vaults of incalculable space, had made him one with himself, and passing, it had left him petrified into an image of its own essence. The form that I had touched was harder than marble, and I knew that it would endure to all time as a testimony of the infinite Medusian power that is death and corruption and darkness. Fafine had now thrown herself at the feet of the image and was clasping its insensible knees. With her frightful muted moaning in my ears, I went forth for the last time from that chamber and from that mansion. Vainly, through delirious months and madness-ridden years, I have tried to shake off the infrangible obsession of my memories. But there is a fatal numbness in my brain, as if it too had been charred and blackened a little in that moment of overpowering nearness to the dark ray of the black statue that was Jean Averroed. The empress of awful and forbidden things has been set like an everlasting seal. Well, for once... Maybe this is why he doesn't remember anything else. Maybe <laughs> that, this that could is the be it, actually. Story. Yeah, this could be the first story. <laughs> and then everything so else now, is just kind of walking through it? Yeah, he just can't remember it because of the the evil seal that's been imprinted on his brain. Mm. Uh, yeah, I love the end of the story, but it's so yeah. weirdly similar to the end of the other story that I'm so just like... Similar. It's kind of baffling. It's yeah. well, it's kind of like in a way it's like the perfect opposite. You've got the in this case, so both in both cases, you have the the artist and the model. You have the artist mm -hmm. who's dabbling in this case he's just an artist of evil and the devoted woman who loves him too much to leave him. The difference is that in his case he one he gets what he wanted unlike Cyprian who wasn't actually like he didn't even want that. He didn't want to be pulled into this hell thing but he did want to experience the evil and so you know what? Maybe he's happy. I feel like this could be a happy ending as contrasted with our tragic ending. Right. Yeah. Because in his case, he perfected evil. He saw it. He experienced it. And he's not going to get to write any books on it, but um, he was successful. I mean, it really sucks to be Fafine. I'm hoping that she could find work somewhere. <laughs> I did feel a little bit bad about him not like offering to take her home and give her somewhere safe to live. Yeah. While she looked for work or something, because that just seems really cruel to run out on her like that. On the other hand, maybe Everode has money in the house and she can, you know, find some way to take care of herself. Anyway, it was just concerning. It's just, it's fascinating to me that he chose to, I think I hadn't necessarily really realized how, I guess I'll use the word obsessed, Argashton mm -hmm. Smith was with statuary until I read these two stories and, and like, combine them thereupon with all of the statuary and like Averroes and the other stories. Well, he was also he also did yeah. sculpt. He did. He, he did, was... but but beyond that, like as an image as like a as a narrative image, it's like right. he, he uses it a lot, which is cool. I don't really know what to make of it. There are some like role-playing game supplements like the one um Isle of the Unknown that's all Clark Ashton Smithian. 
and it's all about mm-hmm. a series of statues. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess he uses statues sometimes, but no, I, I see where they're coming from. Like it's a lot of, yeah. Yeah. there's a lot of statues uh, and like statues as a result of meddling with uh, yeah. forces from the beyond. Yeah, you know? yeah that's true. Uh, now thinking about it, this happens at least once in Zafik mm-hmm. as well, yeah. where a statue comes to life. Uh, or in this case, like vice versa, where like uh, this like yeah, encounter with the statue, yeah, with the unknown becomes like right. turns you into a statue. Uh, yeah. the, what was the uh, what was the one in Averone where the um, the statue of the horny monks, the Venus? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, I love that statue. The disinterment of Venus. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was great. So my second question is: Do you think that this is both a take on the Beyond and on uh, Eric Zahn? From Beyond. From Beyond. Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of Eric Zahn. I thought of From Beyond and The Great God Pan, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it definitely feels a bit like The Great God Pan, too. But yeah, also Eric Zahn, except he's keeping evil away. Yeah, but I guess, I guess just in like the idea that, that it... It's right out there. there. But it is like... The music can influence things beyond what we conceive yeah. as normal. And this one has this like awesome music as science thing that I never mm-hmm. I don't really know any other story that really does that, right? Yeah. yeah. Well yeah. The only other story I can think of is um Karnak ghost hunter, ghost breaker, whatever. He has that um that electric pentagram. That does, he it, uses. does it vibrate though? Like does it make uh, music? uh no, I think it's I think it's lights. I think it works on light light waves, but it's a machine that simulates a cult. I, I like, like, I feel like I would, I would have had if I, if I hadn't read the Devotee of Evil and Hunters from Beyond. I mean, I read Hunters from Beyond before, but I read this for the first time for for recording the podcast. If I hadn't read them back to back, I probably would have had a higher estimation of Devo- Devotee of Evil. But reading them back to back, I was a little bit like, I just read this story. Why am I, why am I reading it again? <laughs> but like with a little bit of space, yeah. I think I would have, I would have come away with a much higher regard for it. I definitely enjoyed them uh, both. It's interesting. All of the Hastain stories are, and I think you mentioned this last episode, Phil, they're all basically the same story, mm-hmm. just told in different ways. And yeah. for different kinds is, of artists. Yeah. It's very, very, very interesting. And they, they, it strikes me as like a weird, almost like a genre that, that Smith didn't want to, that he like dabbled in but didn't engage with. Because like it's so weird right. to use explicitly the same character multiple mm-hmm. times yeah. but then not have any interconnection between the stories at all seems super weird especially if especially if each of them is gonna center around like some a, experience of beyond yeah or like and like a shocking experience from beyond like of, yeah. of the beyond like it's weird to to do that which is why just they almost feel like dalliances or like he was flirting with maybe he was gonna have a recurring character but then like kind of right. It was like meh, and then like, but then wrote another story about him anyway. It's it weird. Like, like I yeah. can't figure out what the impulse is to do them this way. You know? Yeah. Like it's it's three first drafts of a, <laughs> yeah the same of story. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> like yeah, because like if you think about Karnaki or you think about like Conan or you think about um, who is or yeah even like Lovecraft's recurring character who is Randolph Carter, Carter. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like they, those stories, I mean, Conan's stories don't explicitly build on one another, but it's not like he's no. shocked three times by the first time he sees <laughs> no. magic, you know? He's a head scratcher. I like the stories, but it's a, it's a head scratcher as to why not, like, why yeah. not just invent another character for each of them, you know? It's such, it's such weird fiction. Yeah. <laughs> if only there was some <laughs> subgenre name for this kind of fiction. Oh, well, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> 
that's the devotee of evil. That's the devotee of evil. And with that, we also conclude. Well, we have music of death. Isn't it just uh, all, it's all just the rest of the Hestians were fragments? Yeah, well, I believe at least um, there's at least the music of death. Yeah. So next time we're doing Mars, yeah? Oh, is that what we're doing next? I forgot. But yeah, because uh, 1931 is when he started Mars. Yeah. The planet's entity or the seedlings of Mars. Cool. That should be fun. Get off Earth for a little yeah. while. Yeah, stretch our legs. Stretch yeah. our legs. Pop over to Mars. See what's all all's going on over there. I hope pure evil doesn't vibrate from somewhere on Mars. <laughs> Maybe from the vaults of Yovambus. We'll have to find oh, out. Oh, I can't wait. This has been the Double Shadow. Join us next time. that determine the degree of receptivity was... Tim! Timothy!